Take your Bible with me this morning and turn to Matthew chapter 15. It is good to be back in the book of Matthew after taking a few months off to look at uh, the church and just different things about the church, of course, that we've been looking at over the last two or three months. But we are continuing our sermon series looking at really the authority of our King, the authority of King Jesus. And as we've gone throughout the book of Matthew, we've seen this over and over again. We've seen it in his birth, we've seen it in his life, and we've seen it in his teaching. We've seen even wise men come when he was uh, just a very young child and bend the knee to him, showing his authority. In chapter 4 of Matthew, we saw Jesus in this interaction with the devil and even showing his own authority over the devil himself. In chapters 5 to 7, we saw Jesus' teaching. And when he gets done teaching, what do all of the people say that were listening to him for all of those chapters? They say, this guy is speaking and preaching with incredible authority. He's not teaching like some of our scribes. He's teaching with somebody who actually has real authority. And we've moved all the way to really about the midpoint of the book of Matthew. And in the end of chapter 14, if just look back there in, in Matthew chapter 14 and verse 34, it says this, And when they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. So even in terms of being able to heal people, Jesus had a real authority to do so. Anybody who comes to him, you you don't see any instance throughout the book of Matthew where Jesus is unable to heal somebody, right? There's nobody that comes to him where he's like, oh, sorry, can't can't really do that. That's, That's something that's a little out of my league. No, everybody that comes to him is able to be healed. And he also has authority over nature. You saw Peter walk out the boat, step out on the boat, walk on the water. Jesus has incredible authority to even still the winds and the waves. It's incredible. So the authority of King Jesus has been on display throughout this whole book, and we're going to continue to see his authority, even this morning as he handles the Pharisees and the scribes. He's had these run-ins with these kinds of people before, but here they had come to him from Jerusalem. You remember who these Pharisees and scribes are, right? They really the, the the staunch holders of the law, right? They imposing the law, making sure that everybody was doing exactly what they should have been doing. The scribes would do a lot of teaching. The Pharisees would be a lot of the example of what it was to the Jewish community of being a good Jew. And so these scribes and Pharisees, the text tells us, come from Jerusalem, the very important city for every Jew. And so these scribes and Pharisees, probably more than the ones around Jesus and Nazareth and so forth, these Jews, these Pharisees and scribes in particular, were going to be quite prominent. But before we really jump into the passage, I want to ask you a question that is dealt with a couple times within this passage. Is it sinful to not wash your hands before you have dinner? Is it sinful to not wash your hands before you eat some of your moms, you're like, mm, it is so sinful. I tell my children every night, cleanliness is next to godliness. You children are going to wash your hands before you eat. Jesus says so. No, Jesus does not say so. But your moms have probably worked tirelessly to get your kids to wash their hands before they eat. But is it actually sinful to not wash your hands before you eat? 
Well, how would we find the answer to this question? We would look to the Bible, right? We would look to see if God's word has anything to say about washing your hands before you have dinner at night. And as you look through the Bible, you can flip through every page in all 66 books, and you'll never find an instance where Jesus or God says, yes, you must wash your hands before dinner. Yet the Pharisees and the scribes, if Jesus is still in Gennesaret, they come to him from Jerusalem, which is 70 or 80 miles away from where Jesus is, and they come to him asking him that question. Why don't your disciples wash their hands before they eat dinner? And if I'm Jesus, I'm standing there listening to this question, thinking, you came 70 or 80 miles to ask me why they don't wash their hands before they eat, right? That's a little ridiculous, right? No cars, right? You go 70 for an hour, you'll make it. It would be ridiculous for us to drive an hour to ask, hey, do you wash your hands before you eat? So think of how ridiculous it would be for them. Scribes and Pharisees coming all the way to Jesus asking, why don't your disciples wash their hands before they eat? But look at the actual question in verse 2 with me. This is how he asks it, or they ask it. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? So the scribes and the Pharisees, they see that the disciples are eating with unwashed hands, and they want to know, why are they breaking tradition? When we were in elementary school, at the school that I went to, uh, there would be bathroom monitors, right? I don't know if they still do this kind of thing, but they had bathroom monitors. And so a more responsible child would stand at the door of the bathroom holding the door and he would open and close the door whenever a child went in or out. And that child was supposed to make sure that all of the children were behaving inside of the bathroom and that, I assume, they washed their hands before they left and go back to the classroom. And so I imagine these Pharisees and scribes being a little bit like a bathroom monitor. They're standing at the door, bathroom door as it were, complaining to the teacher, Jesus, that these disciples, that these students were breaking the tradition or breaking a man-made rule by not washing their hands before they left. But we have to understand exactly what these guys were, what these guys mean by the word tradition. I assume you probably have traditions, particularly around Christmas time or around different holidays. I think all of our families probably do. Even in our church, there may be certain traditions that we have, things that we like to do. But this tradition of the elders was nothing like that. The tradition that's being referred here is a, a teaching, a, a system of oral teachings that had been passed down generation after generation. So when they talk about the traditions of the elders, it is this oral teaching that had been passed down, which eventually was codified in a, in a book, really, around the year 200, as the Mishnah. But one of these traditions or teachings was that you needed to wash your hands before you ate. Now, there were certainly different ritual washings that the Jews would have to perform in order to be ceremonial, ceremonial clean, but like we've already mentioned, to wash your hands before dinner, this was not a law that they were to have to follow. But I want you to see how Jesus responds to the question that these Pharisees ask in verse 3. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. So really what's going on here is Jesus 
answers their question or responds to their question with another question. He says, or they come to him and they say, why are your disciples breaking tradition? And he asks them, why are you breaking commandments? So the Pharisees and the scribes, they look at Jesus and they accuse him of breaking the tradition of man. And Jesus turns to them and accuses them of breaking God's law. Very, very clearly, all throughout God's law, as Jesus mentions here, there is the law, even one of the Ten Commandments, that we are to honor our father and our mother. This is a crystal clear law, both for the Old Testament and the New Testament. You can find it in both. Honor your father and your mother. But what had happened is that the Pharisees were going around and teaching people that they need not honor their father and their mother so long as whatever your father or your mother needed from you, you said, oh, that's actually dedicated to God, so I'm unable to give it to you. So, for example, if your mom or dad came to you and said, hey, I'm really in a tough spot right now, I need a few dollars, you could simply respond to them and say, well, sorry, that, that, that money that I have over there, that's actually dedicated to the Lord. And you wouldn't have to give it to your parents. This is what the Pharisees were teaching the people to do. They were teaching them to dishonor their parents and not give them what was actually required or needed all in the name of God. And so as long as you said, oh sorry, this money or this item is an offering to God, then you could keep it for yourself and your parents would be none the wiser. In fact, think of maybe how you would feel if your child says, oh actually... No, sorry, that money is dedicated to the Lord and to his service. Wow, what a spiritual child I have to actually have something that's dedicated to the Lord. But to boil it all down, the Pharisees were teaching the people to break the commandment of the Lord while they were willing to fudge on the Ten Commandments. And they were all in this tither over washing hands over the meal. So you can see how there's a a very real imbalance here. Nothing should supersede the word of God in the life of any believer. Man lives by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of whom? Out of the mouth of God, right? Man does not live by the words that proceed out of the mouth of man. We live by the words that proceed out of the mouth of God. Why? Because God's word is authoritative in our life. God's word is final. There is nothing that comes close. There is no system of man-made rules or man-made teachings that should compare with the word of God. The word of God is what should be authoritative in all of our lives. We are all to submit to it. By God's grace, even in our own church, we will not lift up any kind of list of rules or teachings aside from which that is found in the Word of God. Even pastorally, as God raises up more leaders here, and even with myself, my authority in your own life only goes as far as this book goes. Right? So I can't tell you what color shirt to wear. I have no authority to do that. I have no authority to step in your life and say, you know what? The color blue is just really not a good color to wear to church on Sunday. You shouldn't wear the color blue. No. But when it comes to... Sorry for those in blue. Actually, looks like a lot of you. That's probably why I said it. But my authority and your authority in each other's lives and your responsibility to one another goes as far as the word of God. So if you are found saying something that's corroded, that's wrong, that's wicked, we have the responsibility under the word of God to go to you and say... Let no corrupt communication come out of your mouth. 
Or if you're stealing, well, God says not to steal. This is clear in God's word. But none of us should be going up to each other and saying, wow, that color blue really shouldn't be wearing that on church. So you know what that, rep- no, nothing like that. That is not right. But I want you to notice with me how Jesus watches at these religious leaders in verse 7. Look there. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to him, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. So he launches at them in verse 7, You hypocrites! Them's fighting words. We need to really have a balance. Jesus loved to have the children come to him. And you can see just that love that he had for those whom God had made. But we need to put away our cute plush toy Jesus. He is watching at these scribes and Pharisees. You hypocrites. Jesus wasn't put to death because he was just a guy who had a bunch of cute sayings. Jesus was put to death because of things like this. He's totally standing his ground against these Pharisees and scribes from the great city of Jerusalem. What's going on in Jesus' mind? He is, he is avid for the truth of God. right? He is avid for his own truth that is found in the word. He is not going to back down. He's not going to let these Pharisees encumber the people with this system of man-made laws. And so he's launching at them. You hypocrites. You people who tell something, tell people something to do, but then on the other side, you don't do it. Hypocrites are people who appear to have everything together on the outside, but inside, that they are just spiritually a wretch. He relates this passage, Jesus does. He relates things back to a passage in Isaiah where he says, Their hearts are far from me, their worship is in vain, and their teaching is from men and not God. So notice how this builds a little bit. Their hearts were far away from God, which rendered their worship to be in vain. It it was worthless. It was meaningless. When your heart is far away from God, your worship is pointless. It's pointless. So if you're here today and your heart is just away from God, whatever you're doing here this morning, God's not pleased. And if your heart is far away from God then the teaching you teach and listen to is not going to be from God. It's going to be from men. Doesn't that make sense? The further and further your heart is away from God, the less and less you're going to want to listen to what God has to say. This is all very logical and straightforward, and it reveals the pathetic state of the heart of the Pharisees. And you and I have to be so careful with this. That our hearts are fickle things. Yes, we've been rescued by Christ. He's died for us. He has our heart. We are in Christ. All of those things are so true. But we still have fickle, fickle hearts. The song, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We all have that kind of tendency. And we come to worship and we lift our voices and our hands to God and we play that part well only to have our hearts far away from God. We can so easily be lumped right in as a Pharisee or as a scribe. Jesus says that the hearts of these men were far away from God. And why is that significant? Because these men were some of the greatest in Israel. 
zealous for the law of God, spending much time in prayer and even fasting, right? These guys had so much of the Bible memorized, they really would have impressed us. They taught the law and they imposed the law and they sought to know every nuance of it. They had no lack of biblical knowledge. That was not their problem. If one of them were sitting here among us, they would certainly impress us and probably school us all in our knowledge of the Old Testament. They were really incredible people in that sense and disciplined. But what is important for us to understand is that just because we pray and just because we read the Bible and just because we go to the church and just because we do nice things, that doesn't mean that we have a heart that's close to God the Pharisees did all of these things yet Jesus says the hearts are far from me do you have a heart that is far from God or is your heart close to God where is your heart in relation to him do you love the things that God loves are you after the things that God is after or are you drifting away Are you prone to wander? Are you prone to leave the God whom you say you love? But look at verse 10 again with me. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Well, typically if you call somebody a hypocrite, they're going to be offended. But after cutting into the Pharisees and scribes, he calls others to himself and tells them to hear and to understand. It is not what goes into your mouth through supposedly dirty hands that defiles you. But what comes out of your mouth, this is what defiles you. We saw this back in chapter 12. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So Anytime we say something and we immediately say, oh, oh, I didn't mean to say that. No, we did mean to say that because whatever came out of our mouth is what is from our defiled and wicked hearts. Jesus was teaching and emphasizing the word of God and the hearts of the Pharisees were far from God. So certainly they were going to be offended. And how true this is even in our own churches and in our society. How quick we are to get offended when God's word is spoken about. How quickly do we react and say, oh, I can't believe that. Well, that doesn't mean God's word is not true. It simply reveals that our hearts are far away from God. And we need him to draw us close. But I want you to see how Jesus wraps up this conversation in verses 19 and 20. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a person. We really need to understand and come to grips with where our hearts are apart from God. Why do we have evil thoughts? Or even as those who have been redeemed. Do you you ever just sit and, and you're enjoying your family and you're having a good afternoon and the most heinous thought comes to your mind. Some wicked, wretched thought comes to your mind. You're just having a good time, but it just comes. Why? Because of our hearts. Why do we murder or commit adultery or immorality or steal? Or why do we do those things within our hearts? Why do we murder people with hatred? Why do we commit adultery with lust and all of that? Because we have wicked hearts. What comes out of our heart is what is defiling. But to eat with unwashed hands... To break a tradition, 
of the elders that had been passed down and down and down. It doesn't defile anybody. But I want to take some time to do a, a little bit of a case study of sorts on these Pharisees and scribes. What is the problem that they have within this passage? Every, most every Bible passage that you come to is going to show you a problem. It's going to show you an element of the fall. It's going to bring that to life. And what it's trying to do is show how you identify with that problem, but then also give us the remedy of Christ and the gospel. And so this passage, what is the problem that this is showing us? Specifically with the scribes and the Pharisees. What is going on within their hearts? If we could pinpoint their sin, it's always better to pinpoint somebody else's sin, right? It's always better to judge somebody else. So we're going to judge the scribes and Pharisees, but hopefully identify with them as well. What is their sin? In in terms of imposing a man-made hand-washing ritual onto the disciples, what were they? They were legalists. They were legalists. A very simple definition. There's a lot of different definitions about what a legalist is, and it gets thrown around in churches all the time. If you want to insult somebody, call them a legalist. But what is legalism? I think simply stated, legalism is seeking to gain God's favor through obedience to the law or obedience to man-made rules. But I think that there's another level of Legalism, which we find specifically in this passage, and that's with the scribes and the Pharisees imposing a rule, a man-made rule, onto other people. So, a legalist obeys the law, they obey the rules, they obey tradition, they wash their hands before meals, assuming that this obedience is going to bring them into favor with God. So really, legalism is the attempt to gain God's favor through self-empowered works. There are some who would even say that they think that they are justified by this kind of behavior, that they're made righteous before God through their good works. This is a theological liberalism. You see it in many of the world's religions. It's all by works that we gain favor with God, somehow trying to tip that scale, right? We have more good works on this side, so... God's going to say, yep, you're going to go to heaven because of how good you are. But is that the case? The problem is this, Romans chapter 3 and verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. So your standing before God has nothing to do with what you can achieve in your own obedience to the law or obedience to a man-made system of laws. You become a legalist when you begin to rely on anything but the finished work of Jesus for your salvation. So you say, I trust in Jesus, but I've also been baptized. And so those things, that bodes really well for me, baptism as a work. Or I I trust in Jesus, but I take communion as often as the church gives it. So that means that God's going to be pleased, or I do a lot of good deeds. But baptism, the Lord's Supper, good deeds, all of that, they don't contribute to your justification. They don't contribute to the fact that you've been made righteous before God. If you feel like you need to add your own good works in order to really be saved, what you're really saying is that Jesus' work on your behalf wasn't good enough. The truth of the matter is your good works will never get you anywhere in regard to your standing with God. As Jonathan Edwards once said, 
You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. You cannot impress God with your works and make him justify you or make things better for yourself through that. Nobody is justified through obedience to the law or man-made laws. We are justified through faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But this is how we are geared. Again, when you look at the world religions, how do you enter into heaven? Through works. Christianity is the only one where it's totally by grace, right? Through God descending, Jesus condescending to the earth and dying on the cross for our sins and rising again to give us new life and extending this to us that it's totally of grace and has nothing to do with works, right? For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves, right? So your works don't benefit you at all in terms of your justification. This is totally a work of God. But we also need to understand that we can be legalists in regards to our sanctification. That process by which God is making us more and more like Jesus. But to recognize that our obedience to God is the work of God. Right? Your obedience and your ability to obey is the work of God. We're so prone to living these These performance-driven lives. Perform, perform, perform. Make everybody think that we're these great Christians when really on the inside we're hypocrites. We really have hearts that are far away from God like these Pharisees and the scribes. These guys trusted in their own obedience. And this can happen to all of us. As we grow and as we learn and begin to understand God's word, we begin to become susceptible to trusting in our own obedience instead of trusting in the obedience of Christ on our behalf. We cannot be theological legalists trusting in our own ability to obey the law, thinking that it will give us a right standing before God or draw us closer to God because it will not. Works done in the flesh don't benefit us at all. But there's another side of legalism, and this is more practical and certainly related to um, our understanding of sanctification as well. But this is where things tend to get a little more choppy in terms of Christian churches and what goes on in different Christian churches or how we think about legalism. We all have the responsibility to be wise, right? We all have the responsibility to, to be responsible for ourselves, to understand God's word, and to live our lives in accordance with God's word, right? We're always on the hunt for looking for Bible verses that prove our own points, wishing that everything had its own verse, but you quickly realize that it just doesn't work that way. It's not so black and white all the time. And God has given us freedom in regard to many of the things that we decide to do. So let me just throw out a few examples. Schooling choices. Does the Bible tell you, put your child in a Christian school, homeschool your child, or put your child into a public school? Does it say what to do? No. But you have the responsibility before God to look at his word and to think about your lives and how it works in terms of God's word and and to submit where you believe God's word wants you to submit and do what you think God wants us to do in regard to schooling our children. Or parenting. The Bible certainly has plenty to say about parenting, but there is liberty in how each of us raise our child in accordance with God's word. Or modesty. The Bible requires modesty of men and women, but there is freedom into how that is practically worked out in your own life. So you see, a lot of times what we can do is we can begin to start setting up what probably began with a, with a, a real heart um, 
wanting to, I'm trying to phrase it right, um, folks who really had a heart after God, but a real problem resulted in starting to set up our own safeguards. And that's fine if you want to set up these different safeguards in your own life. But the problem becomes when you start taking your safeguard and imposing it on somebody else. That is the real problem. That's what's going on with the Pharisees and the scribes. They said, we're going to go ahead and follow this tradition of washing our hands before we eat. But their huge problem was that they were imposing it onto other people. So do you get the point there? So really, people out of a real heart, I've explained even before about my own life and how I was raised. And My parents were young Christians, came into a certain church that made a lot of demands in terms of how you looked. And so your hair had to be a certain way. You had to wear certain kinds of clothes. You couldn't listen to certain kinds of music. Things like this. Even to go to the Christian school that I went to. I had to sign a paper telling people that I wouldn't listen to um, contemporary Christian music. Or I wouldn't listen to rock music or country music or whatever. And so there were all of these safeguards that probably were born out of a heart of, you know, we really just want to have a strong Christian influence in their lives. But the problem is the imposition of that. What you're doing is you're encumbering people. This is legalism. This is lethal in the life of a church. And quite frankly, it is exhausting. Because what ends up happening when you have all of these man-made things that are built up to surround you, you end up wanting to please the men that raised up those rules instead of pleasing God, right? But the whole point is that we want to be Christians who are pleasing God. And so we take God's word and we read it best we can. And we pray and we ask God to open it to us. And then we make biblical decisions based off of the Bible. But the cumbersome load of legalism is terrible. Think of the kind of burden it must be for a new Christian who has genuinely tasted of the gospel and their burdens of sin and shame have been left behind and they're living this free life in Christ and then all of a sudden they're told, you need to look a certain way. You need to act a certain way. You need to wear certain kinds of clothes. This is tragic, but it's everywhere. As we consider the Pharisees and the scribes, And even the Phariseeism, the legalism that each of us have in our own hearts. How easy it is to look down our nose because somebody else doesn't do exactly what we do in certain regards. What is the remedy for that legalism? It's asking God throughout the week to open my eyes to where I am a legalist. Where am I a Pharisee? We all need to do this. But what do we need? The answer is simple. It's the gospel. I have three, four, five ways to overcome legalism in your life. All we have is the gospel. The pure, simple, unadulterated gospel. The fact that Jesus has come. And he bore our sin upon the cross. And he took it away. And he went into a borrowed grave. And he came out three days later giving victory over sin and death. So we have died with him, but we have also been raised with him. This is the gospel message. So if the problem is the legalistic heart that is far away from God, like these hearts of the Pharisees and scribes, then the remedy that brings us close to God is the gospel, right? So if we're far away from God, what brings us close is the gospel, even in your own heart. Again, when you're prone to wander and you're prone to leave the God you love, you remind yourself of the gospel, and the gospel is what brings you close to God. God again. 
the gospel smashes legalism. So legalism says that you need to perform your way into God's grace by works. But the gospel says that it has nothing to do with your good works. It has everything to do with the work of Jesus. So you are saved by works, just not your own works. You're saved by Jesus' works. Legalism gives us the delusion that God loves us more because we obey more. But the gospel says that God loves us fully in Jesus. This is so built into us. If we obey our teachers as little kids, right, in school, you're like that really obedient, annoying kid in class, always obeying the teacher, always doing what the teacher asks, what ends up happening? You end up becoming the teacher's pet and then likely getting special treatment as a result of being the teacher's pet. But it is not so in Christianity. You cannot be God's pet. God has expressed his love fully to all of those who are in Christ. You cannot make God love you more by following a list of rules. You cannot make God love you more by becoming a reclusive monk. He loves you fully in Jesus. He has expressed that to you in the death and resurrection of his son. But a person who is broken over their sin and amazed at the grace of God in their life is a person who is far away from struggling with legalism. Legalism usually attends those who are proud because proud people are excited about what they are able to accomplish. They feel like God must be impressed with them. But again, the person who is broken over their sin and know their desperate need of the gospel, they struggle far less with legalism. A person who is broken knows that they cannot pull themselves up by their own bootstraps and do it on their own and accomplish things in their own power. A person who is broken knows they need God. Jesus himself was standing before these Pharisees and scribes on this day, and he and what he would accomplish was the remedy that they needed to overcome their great legalism. And we know this because there's another Pharisee who Jesus got a hold of. There's a man named Paul, right? He referred to himself as the Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was a legalist of legalists. He stood by and he, in Acts chapter 6, and he approved of the death of a man named Stephen when he was stoned. Paul persecuted the church. And one day in Acts chapter 9, when he is continuing to persecute more Christians, Jesus speaks to him from the heavens. And this man named Paul gets saved, right? So he goes from a pompous Pharisee to a broken but saved Christian. And as you go through and you read all of Paul's writings and you see him develop and grow and you see what the Spirit is writing through his hand, we begin to read his sermons and all of these things that he's saying to the churches. And what do we see as the centerpiece of Paul's ministry? When you look at the ministry of Paul and you read all of his writings, what is the crystal clear thing that he is solely set on? Christ and him crucified. 1 Corinthians 15, he says this is of first importance, right? The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. He also said to the Corinthians, again, that he desired to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. That Jesus had died and rose again was the remedy for Paul in his own profound struggle with legalism. And it's exactly what the scribes and Pharisees needed on this day. And it's exactly what we need in our own hearts. But what about you? What about me? 
Are there traces of legalism in our lives? Is this represented by the fact that a heart is far away from God? Friends, legalism estranges your heart from God, but the gospel is what will bring you back. Let's pray.